I'm going to take a little break from our verse-by-verse through the Gospel of Matthew. That will probably last for a little while. Every now and then I do that. I'm not in any particular rush to get through Matthew, but I have some messages, just some things from my own thinking about God's Word. I don't just read the Gospel of Matthew, you know, even while I'm going through Matthew. And so I have all sorts of things like kind of in my mind, and every now and then I just sort of need to get them out. And so I take a little pause. You know, when we're close to Christmas, we'll have a couple Christmas-related messages and such. But um, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit today about his grace, about God's grace. And the, the Gospel of John is unique from the other Gospels in a number of ways, but one of the ways that it's really unique is in its introduction. The Gospel of Matthew, all four of the Gospels have different ways that they begin. I suppose at Christmas time we should point out that the way the Gospel of Luke begins is by telling us about the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Jesus Christ and a lot of the things you know about the Christmas story come from the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. That's, that's where Luke, Luke, starts his, Luke starts his gospel with a history of, of, of the births of those two people. Um, Matthew, as you know, starts his gospel with genealogies because he's trying to make the case that the Lord Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. And so, uh, you know, the main, one of the main themes of the gospel of Matthew is to tie Old Testament prophecy to the identity of Jesus. So it's unique that way. The Gospel of Mark, the shortest of all the Gospels, starts simply by jumping right into the narrative. Just starts off by saying the Gospel of Jesus Christ and goes right into talking about voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and before you get out of chapter 1, you're already listening to Jesus preach. So it just gets right into it. John starts uniquely. John actually starts like Genesis does in the beginning. And... uh, and it, it takes a different look of Je- at Jesus. It takes the look at Jesus as being God, right from the very beginning of the book, which we'll see in a minute. And the other thing that it does is it, the, the Gospel of John is the one that gets the most theological right in the beginning because we know from the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, not the very end, but the penultimate chapter, the, uh, uh, John says that the reason I'm writing this book is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John very deliberately tells us that the reason that he wrote his gospel is while it is blessing and edification for believers, it is written so that unbelievers can read and understand who Jesus is and come to faith in his name. And uh, so right away, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, you get this uh, teaching about him being God in the flesh. And by the time you get to the end of the prologue to the Gospel of John, you're introduced to the concept of grace, which is, uh, which, which is in, in some respects, you could say, like kind of the ultimate theological concept, because everything is by grace. We're saved by grace, Uh, by God's grace, we're kept by God's grace, we're sustained and preserved by God's grace. All of it has to do with God and his goodness towards us 
that we don't earn or deserve. And so right away, when you're introduced to Jesus, you're introduced to him as being the, 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 the epitome of the reflection of God's grace towards us in that he came. God's goodness towards us that we've neither earned nor deserved is that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Let me say a prayer. And with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about two things. A, passage, a couple passages of scripture that put the spotlight on God's grace. And then I want to turn to a few more passages of scripture that make application of that grace. I've talked about uh, the sermon title in your bulletins, you can see, is Applications of Grace. The fact that God is gracious to us, which we'll talk about here, means some things in our lives in a practical sense, as well as His grace being that which brings salvation to us, His grace also ought to cause certain effects in our own lives that the apostles wrote about. The last thing I'll say by way of introduction is this. Very interesting. If you, if you, if you go on your phone right now, don't do it now, but if, if you go on your computer or something and, and just go to like a concordance and type in the word grace and just to see how many times and places it appears in the New Testament, here's what you'll notice. The word grace almost never appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But when you get to the book of Acts, which is when the apostles start to preach, you start to see the word grace all the time. And then when you get into the epistles, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian letters, the pastoral epistles, John's letters, Peter's letters, Jude's letter, even Revelation, what you see, I think with the exception of a couple of John's epistles, the word itself, grace, appears frequently in all of those letters. In fact, in virtually every one of Paul's letters in the salutations, you find him writing grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So while the, while the gospel writers in writing about Jesus didn't necessarily use the word, they were describing it happening. They were describing the grace of God being poured out to us. The apostles recognized it and wrote about it frequently, which I think is an interesting observation to make. Like the apostles writing the inspired word of God, of course, what the apostles, when they're writing their letters, knowing about what it is that Jesus had done, some of them eyewitnesses, Paul, maybe not an eyewitness, but certainly aware of everything that had gone on as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What did they recognize? Grace, 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 grace. And so they're constantly writing about it. Not just writing about the grace which saves us, but that same grace which also causes like an effect in our lives. How ought we to be having been saved by God's grace? Did I pray yet? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for your grace. And I pray, Lord God, that as we read and study that you, because when we talk about grace, we're really talking about you. We're not just talking about a concept. We're talking about a way that you are. We're talking about a characteristic of you. We're talking about things that you have done when we talk about grace. And so my prayer, Lord, is that we would recognize this 
and we would be grateful, humbled, and that you would help us to learn and be edified and just really encouraged today. I pray you'd encourage your people by this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. What a tremendous opening, a great prologue to a book that was written to try to convince people of God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Just a few words about this. It starts in the beginning, as the book of Genesis does. And what are we told? In the beginning was the Word. I explained this in the nursing home recently, actually. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So right away, you see, in the beginning was the Word. And when you see that word, Word, immediately you maybe think of something that somebody says or something that somebody writes. But the word, word there is not describing like a word in the common way that we would understand it, right? Right? Because in verse 2, the word is referred to a person with a personal pronoun, right? The word is referred to as he. So when we talk about the word here, we're talking about a person. The identity of this person is the word, which is an interesting way to describe a person because it makes you, and I'll, I'll come back to in a minute, but why would... Why would this person be described that way? Think about that. Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was two things at the same time. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So right away, you're presented with something that really just in ordinary thinking would be a very complex thing to figure out. The word was both God and was with God, right? And I could stop and explain all that right now, but let's just continue on through it, and then as it's revealed here in this chapter, you'll understand it. He was in the beginning with God. So the word is a person, the word is God, and the word is with God. Not yet told who this person is, but we're told that this person called the word was all the way from the beginning, eternal, just like God, was with God and is, was God. Verse 3, we're told that he's the creator. Woo, getting heavy here. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he's not only the creator, look what it says next in verse 4. In him was life. So he's not just the creator, he's the giver of life. This person called the word, right? And in him was the light of men. What is, what is light? Light in biblical literature, usually refers to either knowledge or goodness or both or everything. But that's what he was. He, in him was life, and the life that he gives was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, which is a picture of this world's rejection of this person called the Word and the life and the light that he so freely gives. Right? Interesting. Now, from there, the narrative stops to introduce us to somebody else. That's John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Don't be distracted by the fact that this is the Gospel of John. This, this is a man named John writing about another man named John. And this John that he's writing about is John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light he wasn't the light, but he bore witness of the light that all through him might believe. So now we have this person who's called the Word, who's God, who is the Creator, who is the giver of life and the giver of light, and we have this other person, John, who we know is John the Baptist, who came to tell people about that light that they might what? Believe. So that they might have salvation and forgiveness through that light. Who was that light? Verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He's the giver of light. He's the creator of everything. He came to be in this world which he himself made, and no one recognized him, except the scant few that God chose to reveal him to. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That narrows the focus down on his own people that he was born into, the Jewish people. He came as a Jew to the Jews, and the Jews didn't receive him. But, verse 12, as many as received him, so right away you recognize in verse 11 when it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but there were others that weren't his own who did. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Whoa! This person who's called the Word is something else, right? He came, and as many as received him, 
To them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born, look at this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, they weren't born of blood. In other words, becoming a child of God had nothing to do with who you were descended from, right? Nor of the will of the flesh, Becoming a child of God had nothing to do with anyone's will about this, including your own, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was entirely God's doing that people should come to this person called the Word and believe and receive Him and receive salvation. I want to know who this person called the Word is. Right? Uh, This person called the Word is something else, right? And you got to read this like that because the Gospel of John was written to introduce unbelievers to Jesus. And so someone reading this with no knowledge of, 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 of really anything else, like we have all this knowledge of things, but someone reading this with no knowledge would read and be like, who is this person? The Word. Well, it goes on. Verse 14. The Word became flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The Word became flesh. So this person who's the Word, who was in the beginning with God, this person who's called the Word, who is God and was in heaven with God at the beginning, became flesh. In other words, He became one of us and lived here. And we beheld His glory. That That means John himself is saying, we actually saw the glory of this one. The glory as of, look at this, the only begotten of the Father, God's only child, God's only Son. We saw Him, and He was the Son of God, full of grace and truth. There's grace. We're going to come back to grace in a minute. That's where we're going to hang out on. It comes back to that phrase, grace and truth, in a minute. Now John, so now we go back to John. John bore witness of Him. That means John went telling people about him. And he said, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. You know, one of the other gospel accounts tells us that when John the Baptist came to preach, he had drawn such a big crowd to himself that they wondered, maybe this is the Messiah. And the the religious leaders from Jerusalem sent people out to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and they asked him, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? You know, because all of these were things that, I don't go into it now, but based on Old Testament teachings and some tradition, they were expecting what would happen, somebody would come, right? And John is like, no, 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 there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to kneel down and untie his sandals. That's what he means here, too, when it says, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John the Baptist certainly recognizes who Jesus is, right? Okay, so... Verse 16. Now this is where I went through all that fast, but I wanted to get to this. And of his, notice the capital H, his, this is this person called the Word, right? Of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. I love, every now and then I like to read the, um, the New Living Translation of the Bible. And the way, the way this is rendered, the New Living Translation, this phrase, grace for grace, is one gracious blessing after another. You know? In other words, grace upon grace. Gift piled upon gift. That's what this is talking about. 
we have all received all. Now, remember, who's he writing to? Unbelievers, right? So he's pointing out that commonly in the world, right, all of us are the recipients of the grace of this one. Only those who are believers have received saving grace. But every person on this planet has received grace in that we've received life. We receive the capacity to breathe. We receive our bodies. We're placed in families. We have food. We have water. We have, we have everything we need in Him. Grace for grace. The whole world is the recipient of grace. The entire world is the recipient of gift upon gift, one gracious blessing after another. Of His fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Verse 17, look at this. For the law came through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen to me. The very first time that John uses his name, the very first time that John uses his name and his title, because Jesus Christ is not like a, like a, like a name and a surname, like I'm Louis Divizia. Jesus Christ, his name is Jesus, and Christ is his title. Christ is who he is. Christ is the same word as Messiah. You see it many times in the New Testament, Christ Jesus. So John announces him here with his name and identifying that he was the Messiah, right? But what I found very compelling was that the first time that John uses his name after describing him as the Word, as de- after describing him as God, as describing him as with God, as describing as, after describing him as the Creator, as the giver of life, as the giver of light, as the giver of gift upon gift, blessing upon blessing to all men, when he introduces him by name, it's what? He's, grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning of John's writing, Jesus is linked with grace and truth. It's very powerful. That struck me as very powerful. See, it's never really explained in the Bible why he's called the Word, but my own thinking on it is the word, word, logos, I used to say Logos until Dan Mercado corrected me, right? Logos. Logos, did I say it right? It says says uh, the, the, that Greek word, which means word, is what? A word is an expression of something, right? A word is something you would write down. A word is something you would say. A word is something that you would use to communicate or transmit some sort of message or truth or something to somebody else. And this reminds me of the opening of the beginning of Hebrews, which says something to the effect of, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact quote in my head, but it says something to the effect of God has spoken to us in various times in the past by prophets and such and such, but, but now He has spoken to us by His Son, which is kind of the same thing. This, what Jesus is, is He is the expression of God's grace and truth to the world. And thus he is called the Word. The Word. And the Word which became flesh and lived among us. We saw his glory as of the only child of God, full of grace and truth. Here comes God's grace and truth expressed to the world in the most beautiful and holy of ways. 
in his only begotten son, who is one with him and has been with him all the way from the beginning, dispatched from the Father to come to all of us to bring grace and truth. What is grace? What really is grace? Grace is getting something good when you have not done and cannot ever do anything to deserve it. Our place before God begins and is kept all the way to the end by His grace. We have salvation. We can call God our Father. We have the forgiveness of sins all because of His goodness to us and not because of anything we can do. You know what happens after you walk with Christ for a while and you grow? You know what you learn about yourself? You start to learn, I really don't deserve this at all. I know I've grown in the faith since I first came to know him. But it's like almost like, dare I say, a double-edged sword. Because as I've grown in the knowledge of him, I've also grown in the knowledge of myself. And as I've grown in the knowledge of myself, you know what I've learned about myself? What on earth would God see that in any way I would be fit to be part of his family, let alone be someone who talks to other people about him. The more I grow, the more sinful I realize that I am. The more I get to know him and his beauty and his perfect and his perfection and his holiness, the more I see the stains in my own life that it reveals. And if I dwell on it in a carnal way, it gets me discouraged and it gets me depressed. But when I read and think about God's word and learn about who he is, when I learn about the fact that the word came full of grace and truth, what I realize is I'm in the better place realizing that I'm stained and fallen and utterly sinful and hopeless, but saved and kept by His grace, than trying to look at myself and realize, man, I really should have defeated that by now. You know, really, that ought to be, that ought to be completely eradicated from my life by now. Maybe I'm not really His child. This is a prison. This is freedom. And this is the truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick. And you know what? We sang a song this morning that said, when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die. Assuming the Lord doesn't come back, raise your hand. If you, this would be hard for some of you young people because you never think about this. But raise your hand if you expect to die someday. Raise your hand if you expect you're going to die someday. Forget about like, well, I think the Lord's going to come back first. Just take that out of the equation. Raise your hand if you expect someday you're going to die. That's good. You're, you're in tune with the latest research, which tells us that, that, that 10 out of 10 eventually die. 
Do you know what the fact that we die proves? That the effect of sin is never completely eradicated in a carnal sense, a fleshly sense in our lives. The penalty for sin, the power of sin over us, the dominion that sin can have over my mind, my heart, my flesh, and my actions, the the imprisonment to sin is broken and taken away forever by the Lord. But the in the flesh consequences of sin are still there. The soul that sins, it shall die. What does that prove? What it proves is, it's only by his, and listen, and thank God that this is true. It's only by his goodness to us that I am sustained. It is only by his grace to me that I have not earned or deserved that I am saved. It is by his grace. He's full of grace. He's full of it, grace and truth. Full of it, grace and truth. His grace is greater than all of my sin. His grace conquers all of my sin. Where my sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Not that I would ever be inclined to try, but if I did, I could never outsin his grace. Man, that gives me some freedom, brothers and sisters. I know I battle and I struggle. I know there are things that knock me off. I know there are things that get me down. I know there are things in my life that, for crying out loud, why isn't this like just completely conquered and defeated and 100% gone from my life yet? But I don't let those things stop me from worshiping God or serving God because His grace is greater than all of it and has conquered it and has wiped it all away. And so I go on. I strive to be holy. I strive to be close to God. I strive to walk as I should. I strive to not sin. I strive to love Him. I strive to worship Him. And all of that is good and all of that is right. And what I find myself doing is constantly tripping and stumbling and falling all all along the way. And what all that tripping and stumbling proves is that the reason that I'm able to get back up and continue to go after Him and follow Him and serve Him and worship Him and thank Him and glorify Him is because He is good. And His goodness has been poured out upon me. That's God's grace. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Listen, as you're turning there, I want you to know this. Listen, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, I know there are things, because it's true for me, I'm sure it's true for you. There, there are things in your life I know that probably drag you to the point where it's like, how can I even be saved? Look, look, we need to stop thinking that way. We don't, we don't trust in Moses. Through whom came the law? Yeah, you ought to be depressed if that's because all, all, all what nothing against Moses and nothing against the law, but all the law does is shows us that I'm sinful. Shows me that I'm sinful, and it's supposed to do that. That's the intended effect of the law. But His grace shows me that I need Him, and His grace shows me that by faith I have. And the matter, listen, 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 
The matter is settled forever. God's spirit in you is the seal that this work is done. Just as Jesus said, it is finished on the cross when he died, when you received his spirit, that was finished too. The power that sin and the dominion that sin had over the eternal destiny of your soul was removed as far as the east is from the west, and it is finished. You don't let anything that you battle and struggle with, and you're going to battle and struggle. Bob eloquently and beautifully taught us about that last week. You don't let anything that causes you to battle and struggle get you so off that you somehow think that God is not able or God has forgotten or God has given you up. Listen, do we believe his words or not? No one shall be able to pluck them out of my hand. Sovereign God says, you're mine and no one will take you out of my hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So you don't let anything that comes up your life, you battle, you struggle, you fall, you stumble. We all do. We all stumble over many things, the Bible says. That's why we're called to bear with one another and love one another and forgive one another and our weaknesses. You, you don't let anything. You know what you do? And you find yourself battling and struggling. You, sh- you don't in your spirit license yourself to sin. I know that, right? But you don't let yourself go to, I must not be God's. Listen, the reason, the reason that you are God's is because he knew before you even were aware that it was a problem. He knew that your sin kept you separate from him. And he, by the sovereign act, born not of blood, not of the flesh, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God, he knew and he, by his power, drew you to himself, opened up your eyes, granted to you to believe, and by his grace saved you and made him made you his child, sealed it by the Holy Spirit forever and ever. So when you find yourself battling and struggling, you don't let this thought overwhelm you that maybe I'm not God's. You remind yourself of this. You say, I am so grateful and thankful that I am God's. Because, because if I weren't God's, this thing that I can't seem to like conquer and get over, it would sentence me to eternity in hell. But Jesus died for my sins. And he rose from the dead, and his blood washed it away, and I am his. I am saved. I have been set free. See, sin has dominion over us when we battle and struggle. It's not, we, we, sometimes we, we take the concept of sin having dominion over us, and we interpret that concept to mean, well, I still battle and struggle with sin and sometimes fall into it, And so sin must still really have dominion over me. And I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think, you know when sin has dominion over us? Sin has dominion over us when we battle and struggle and it causes us to doubt God's grace. It causes us to doubt God's capacity to love us and forgive us and save us even though we battle and struggle. 
That's when sin is exercising the real deadly power of sin. Because we're reconciled to God by faith. And anything that happens in our lives that causes us to doubt or to not have faith, that is what is like causing the the problem between us and God. What you need to do is settle on it like God has settled on it. If you've received Jesus as your Savior, you've received the spirit of adoption, you've received his Holy Spirit on the seal on your life, it's done. The deal is done. You're his forever. There's nothing you or anybody can do about it. Because it's his will. It wasn't your will to get saved. If it was, then maybe you have a problem. But it was his will to save you. And God came and by his sovereign power, by his sovereign grace, saved you and you're his. It's on, it, listen, it's dependent on him. It's not dependent on me. My getting saved was not dependent on me. My staying saved is not dependent on me. I mean, come on, we don't get saved by grace and then keep it by works. That's the problem with the whole losing your salvation thing, right? Is that, like, it makes salvation both by grace and works. Like, getting saved is by grace, but then staying saved is by not sinning. Where's that in the Bible? Don't waste your time looking. Right? We're saved by His grace, and we are kept by His grace. And and when you trust in Christ and receive Christ, it's finished. That's why Jesus said, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. He didn't say, come to me and I will give you a constant cycle of trouble by which every time you battle and struggle, you doubt if you're saved and you need to get re-saved again multiple times every day. Because every time you sin, you need to repent again and come back and get saved again. And oh man, I better be careful that I don't sin right before I die because maybe I'll lose it and I'll go to hell even if I believe my whole life. And you can start to think about things like that, Right? That's not, that's not what it is. His, his, his salvation, listen, the deal's done by his sovereign work of power. What did I say to turn to? Ephesians 2? Listen to this. Follow along with me. And you, he made alive. I read this at the Thanksgiving dinner. Let's just go through it real quick. You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. The English translators of the New King James Version added the words, he made alive, because... uh, In English, that's one giant sentence fragment, verses 1, 2, and 3. Without those words, he made alive. So so to to help you to understand what it is, they added those words, he made alive, because it's a a repetition of the concept that comes up in verse 5, that he made us alive, okay? So, but you get the idea. What were we? We were dead. We used to walk like in the world. We were disobedient in our conduct, the lusts of our flesh, and we were children of wrath just like everybody else. By nature. Notice the words at the end of verse 3. By nature. We are natural born sinners. Natural born enemies of God. Now look at the first word of verse 4. But. Here we go. Now we're going to have a contrast. Right? I like that. Yeah. 
after having this dire picture painted. Because, because he made alive was, are the words that were added in. That's why they're in italics in the, in the New King James Version. But if you take the words he made alive out, which they're not in the original Greek, then, then it's a really dire sentence fragment. You know, it's, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, once you walked, there, there's nothing good in the sentence. It's all just dire consequences and doom in those, in those first three verses. So anyway, that's more the sense of what the apostle intended when he wrote. He intended to show the dire situation you were in, but, in verse 4, but God, but God, but God. Well, there's a title for a book. If anyone's entitled to write a great, glorious book glorifying God, but God. Thank God for but God. You know? Because, I mean, we're just lost we're hopeless, we're sinful, we can't do anything about it, we're blind, we, like the rest of the world, we shunned the light, we, we, we received grace upon grace, and yet we rejected the light that came along with it. But God. Thank God for but God. Thank God that God's a but God. Who, listen, it comes into a situation where he, we deserve what the world got in Noah's day. But God, what? who's rich in mercy. Oh. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were, verses 1, 2, and 3. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. That made us alive is in the original language. Made us alive together with Christ. And now, I love the little parenthetical statement at the end of verse 5, just to make sure you understand what Paul means. By grace you have been saved. Remember that. But God, listen, this isn't, this isn't but me. You know, I was dead, but I recognized the light and turned. But I recognized the error of my ways and turned to God. But I recognized among all of the lost people around me, I recognized and I went to Him. Nothing of the sort. By grace you have been saved. But not but I, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ. Alive together with Christ. In other words, just like Christ was raised from the dead, we who were dead in trespasses and sins were resurrected, made alive, new creatures. Made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God made us alive, gave us eyes to see the end of the road, so that when we get there, He is going to... Listen, what we see now, the glimpse we have now, the reconciliation that we have with Him now is awesome. But what He's got out there for us, He's going to show us in the age to come. There is an age coming. There is an age coming with all... Listen, there is an age coming when the target, the goal, the point of His grace is going to be fully realized. 
like, 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 listen, we battle, we struggle, we're brought down, we battle with sin and the flesh and everything else. The goal of God is not to leave us there for eternity. In the ages to come, He's going to show us the exceeding riches. We're just told that He's rich in mercy. That's, and we know that now. But there's an age coming when He is going to show us the exceeding riches of His grace. And we're going to be free from this. And this battle and struggle that causes this inner conflict and turmoil, you know, that we need to learn to just trust His grace and trust His grace. Yes, confess your sins. Yes, strive to be holy. But when we battle and we struggle, don't give up on His grace. Trust in His grace. Because the day is going to come when He's going to show to us even more. In the age to come, we're going to have revealed to us even more. We'll be free from these bodies. We'll be free from these bodies. And all the stuff that they do. So wicked that the Apostle Paul at one point says, when I sin, it's no longer I who sin, but sin in me. Freedom from it. Freedom from it is coming. Freedom from it is coming, brothers and sisters. And what you need to do, this is very much like what what, uh, Brother Jed to all the men... uh, at the last men's fellowship, we sat here and we all got jettified. No, listen, je- listen, jettification is a very important thing, right? I, I usually reserve that for Etta, and I tell people that we got edified, but now we have Jed, so we also, the, men, the ladies get edified, the men get jettified. But he, the brother was pointing out to us that we need to we need to be keeping our focus on what's ahead. And that ought to drive us through the battles and struggles and trials that we commonly... And that's very much like Brother Bob was talking about last week too. That's very much what he's, Paul is writing about here in Ephesians as well. In the ages to come. In the ages to come. There's an, when's the last time you even just stopped to think about the fact that there even is an age to come? You know that now is not it, right? Now is nothing compared to what's coming. And that's the key, is you got to get your mind there. This is nothing. This is a vapor. (sighs) Gone. It's a vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away. Right? There's an age that comes where not just what we know about His grace now, but the exceeding riches of His grace are going to be given to us and showed to us. And we're going to realize our salvation, free from these bodies, free from this battle, free from the struggle, free from it all. The suffering we go through now, as Bob pointed out last week, is, is to train us, to help us to appreciate, help us to be thankful, teaches us to endure, set a good example for others, all the other things that the brother was talking about, we was talking about from First Peter and everything else, right? That's All of that is a purpose in our lives, because God is building us up and causing us to be more thankful and to grow. But there's an age coming, and you've got to keep your eyes on it. Why? Because of verse 8. You notice the verse starts with the word for. So the word for indicates that this is a reason for something. This is the reason why. This is the reason why we ought to cherish God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Understand very, very carefully that the that 
refers to the words right before it, the faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you want to think of it, think of it as if the word even is, is right before the word that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and even that's not yours. Even faith is a gift from God, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's why, that's why when sin lurks, which it does, when sin tempts, which it always does, when sin overwhelms, which sadly sometimes it does, I remember this. That even the faith that I have in him was given to me by him. He opened. I, I can't even say I like figured it out for myself so that somehow I can credit myself. He put it in my heart to believe. Now, I am committed to getting to the third hymn on, on Sundays. So, I might cut this off short in a minute because the part, the, the, I expected to take all that time to go through. There are two lengthy passages of Scripture and I could have spent more time on them, but, but listen to me. There, the reason I called this applications of grace, this message, is because we've reached the point in expositing the text that... Uh, goes into that. It becomes practical. You see verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now look, we in and of ourselves can't do anything good in the sense that we can justify ourselves or lay claim to anything before God, even faith we can't credit ourselves with. We're his workmanship. You know, you go outside and you see a tree that's beautiful, something in nature that's beautiful, and you understand the concept of workmanship because God, God masterfully created these things. Even in a human sense, what sorts of things do you look at do you appreciate? I like the lines. This is going to sound really strange, but I love the lines on a Corvette. I do. I mean, I mean, I mean, I see, I, to this day, of any era, especially the new ones, <laughs> of any era, if I see a Corvette, I stop. Where's Judy? Judy's up there. Remember Judy? We gave Judy a ride to one of her appointments this week, and a Corvette passed me on the road, and I said, Judy, take a picture of that and text it to me. And she did, and then I texted it to my daughter because Anna and I are, are, are afflicted with the same disease. I keep, t- I keep telling myself, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet. <laughs> I mean, I mean my, my 15-year-old minivan with 175,000 miles is great, and if I get bored of that, I have my 16-year-old conversion van with 140,000 miles to keep me company. So, so I'm, listen, it's great, it's great, right? But I admire the workmanship I admire what I see that people have labored in a lab or however things are designed in the modern day. Someone designed the lines on these to be aerodynamic and, and sharp looking and no matter what, I'm, it, I stop and, you know, you, you heard the phrase head turner. That's what that car is to me. It's like, wow. 
Listen, that's garbage. Nothing compared to this. We are God's workmanship. God's working on us. And it's an ongoing project. God is working on us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not like we can even take credit for that. We're just walking in the things that God prepared beforehand that we should do. And we are His work. Every Christian is a little Corvette in the design room of God. And there are some of you that I look at knowing where you were, seeing where you are, and I look at you and I say, man, look what God has done. Where his, I mean, that's a real head turner. When you see someone whose life was this, but now it's this because of what God has done. Again, not that we can justify ourselves because we're saved by his grace, but I see people who just wallowed and walked and they were blind and they were outside the light and then God saved them and now they're like in church and they worship and they serve God and they're raising their kids to love the Lord. They battle, they struggle. But you know what? God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus that we should do these good works, that we should glorify him with it. That's his grace, too. That's his grace. We're saved by his grace, kept by his grace, built up by his grace, used by his grace. All in that sovereign will of God. Where would you rather be than that? You know, the next time, the next time you feel like, I mean, you have faith in the Lord Jesus. The next time you feel like, you know what? There's no way that God could possibly mean this, that he wants me to be part of this or he wants me to do this. Or you open your Bible and it's like, how can I even read this? I'm not worthy. How can I possibly even pray to him? Why would God want to hear me? You remember his grace. You remember that you're there because of him and not because of you. And you and listen, 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 listen. You rejoice in it. The first of my five applications that I have, which are going to be next week's sermon, are you rejoice in his grace. You don't, you don't see his grace as I don't want you know, and, and we can turn his grace sometimes into something that actually makes us even lower and worse. Listen, his grace ought to cause real, true joy. And we'll talk about that next week.